Before I get started, I want to uh, introduce myself. For those that don't know me, my name is Paul Wiggs. I'm director of men's ministry here. You foolish people have put me in charge of that. I'm, I'm amazed by it <laughs> as I stand here. Um, what a blessing you are to me and my family. Uh, the Lord is gracious and loving. I've had lots of brothers and sisters out there praying uh, for me and praying that my family would be here, and uh, they are. So I praise God for that. Um, if I might, could I lead us in a word of prayer before we get started? Heavenly Father, we just glorify your name. You're worthy of all of our praise. Lord, let everything we do and say uh, be lifting up to you, glorifying you, Lord, because uh, you are worthy of our praise. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Marcella and I have been members of this church for about six months now. Uh, we've been attending here about 18 months. Uh, we've moved up here from uh, Tempe, Arizona. Uh, I finished up a career there with Arizona Public Service Company, local utility company. Uh, I was in marketing, new business development, and uh, a company let me travel around the world to try to recruit new industry into the state. We had lots of extra uh, energy capacity. And uh, we had two children, uh, a son and a daughter, Lucas and uh, Shelby. And uh, uh, Lucas got married and uh, met a lovely young lady, Courtney uh, Jonas, and they had three boys. And uh, about nine years ago, Luke died in a car crash. And uh, uh, Courtney met a fine young man, uh, Scott, and uh, remarried and had a beautiful little girl, Megan. And I am so glad that they're here today uh, to hear the good news of the gospel and a little bit about their grandfather. I got lots of uh, nephews and nieces, Graham and Colin, and, and uh, my, my son's namesake, Lucas, and my, of course my wife and uh, Shelby and Rick, my a brother-in-law who is my dear friend and Shelby, who most of you know just recently graduated from the uh, Denver Seminary, got her master's degree. So what a blessing it is to have family here. And, uh, of course, my daughter's here as well. And, uh, Shelby, it's great to see you, honey. Um, it wasn't always so good for me. Uh, when I was a year old, my father was murdered. He was killed by his second cousin. They were in a drunken fight. And he hit him in the head with a tire iron and killed him. Uh, my mom was 27 years old. She had five children. No education. And uh, she took us to live with my grandparents on my dad's side. And uh, from the time I was 11 months old until I was about six, uh, we lived on a farm in Mississippi. During that time, my mom went to beauty school and became a hair uh, beautician. And uh, when I was six, she came back down to Mississippi and got us. And I moved from being the baby of the family. I was the youngest. I have an older brother, eight years old, and three sisters in between us. I moved from being the baby of the family to being the middle child. Mom quickly had two more children. And um, I'm not sure what all caused it. I've even quit thinking about it, trying to figure it out. I was just incredibly angry. And that anger manifested itself in violence in my life. Um, we lived in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I lived in a community of Jewish and uh, Italian kids. And my best friend was a young man by the name of Jerry Prager. His uncle owned a, uh, a liquor store, and he was proud to say it was a kosher liquor store. <laughs> and uh, uh, I was eight, and we decided we were going to go in and get some wine and just get drunk. Uh, I went in, and my mom would send me back there occasionally. You know, it was like 1954 or something like that, so it was a different kind of America back then. And she would send me down to the store to get cooking sherry for her occasionally. And I went in, and I said, Mr. Frager, Mom wants me to uh, pick up some cooking, uh, some wine. And he said, some cooking sherry? I said, no, uh, she wants Mogan David. <laughs> and she'd like it cold. <laughs> and, uh, 
he, he said, are you sure your mom is asking for this? And I said, yeah, you, you can ask her. Well, he gave us the wine. We went in the alley in the back, eight years old. We just got pie-faced drunk. Uh, we got picked up by the uh, police and taken to juvie, uh, juvenile hall. And that was my first introduction to the um, judicial system. Now, I, met a, I saw a lot of friends in there that I had been told they were way at camp. And uh, they, were <laughs> they were, in fact, in juvie as well. We had a great time. Stayed up all night, had pillow fights. Uh, it was just, it was fun. So when someone would say, do you want to go back to juvie? I would say, "Uh, yeah, why not? It just didn't scare me. Uh, I became incorrigible, uh, acting out on my anger. And I was involved in some gangs, not like the gangs today where they do drive-bys, but gangs that, you know, fought in the neighborhood to try to uh, establish who was the toughest. I got sent to reform school. Um, It's a reform school in name only. It was up in just outside of Nashville. A little place called Jardonia. Uh, I went there at 13 years of age and I was slated to be there until I was 18. I was incorrigible. Something happened uh, uh, when I got there. I discovered I knew how to fight. I discovered the sweet science of boxing. I love to this day. I, I enjoy boxing and I was good at it. I, I was be able to fight uh, a weight or two class above my own weight, flyweight. And uh, at, in fact, one time I thought about being a professional prize fighter. Really good. And um, so every time I, I would go into an institution, I became I just got on the boxing team. I enjoyed it. Uh, something happened. Instead of me being kept there until I was 18, they released me when I was 16. And I came back to Memphis, Tennessee uh, to live with my parents. By this time, I can really fight. I'm really angry. And uh, I, I think I can take on anybody. My father, his name was Paul also. He was about six foot two. You guessed it. They called him Big Paul, and I was little Paul. So that only added to the anger <laughs> and, and the determination to prove something to people. My sister, my uh, the youngest of my daughter uh, of my sisters, uh, Polly, uh, her her actual name is Paulette, and uh, something got stuck on like a record in our family. My mom's name is Pauline, my sister is Paulette, and I'm Paul Lee, and uh, <laughs> we called her Polly. And Polly and I was, were very and are very close. Uh, she was, in many ways, the opposite of me. She was a high school cheerleader. She didn't get in trouble. I did. And uh, she, was, she was never embarrassed of me as her younger brother. I came home when I was 16. She was about 17. And uh, she had her high school um, uniform on. And uh, any of you from the South? Lived in the South? Um, There's a significance to that uh, she had done something that caused my stepfather he was going to give her a whipping now you know what a whipping is in the south you see the dumb with a switch you, know, you go out and you get a switch uh, or it's done with a belt well my stepfather he pulls out his belt doubles it up and grabs polly by the wrist and he begins to flail at her and she began to flop around on the floor as he's as he's whipping her and uh, she was uh, crying out don't hit my legs uh, she didn't want to have welts and bruises on her legs and she was she was begging not to be hit on the legs. My mom had been ironing that day and, and she had left the iron out. And a smoothing iron was sitting on it. And uh, I was full of anger and I took that iron. And I walked up behind Big Paul and I hit him right in the head with it. Knocked him down, didn't knock him out. And as he uh, was on his knees looking at me, I told him, you ever touch my sister again, I'll kill you. Then I hit him in the forehead with this smoothing iron again. And I ran off and I went to Jerry's, Jerry Prager's. And my sister found me about three days later. 
said, you've got to come home. You, you just can't stay at Jerry's. When I came home, my stepfather said, you can't live here anymore. You've got to leave. So I went uh, out to California to live with my brother, who was eight years older than me. He just got out of the Marine Corps. And uh, I was incorrigible then and still was when I got to California. And here I was, a southern boy, trying to take Spanish uh, with a bunch of people that were just strange to me. And I just began to cut school and ditch school, and I just went down to the beach. My brother said, this isn't going to cut it. You're going to have to uh, go into the military. They'll straighten you out. So he put me in the Marine Corps Reserves. Uh, I went through boot camp. I was 17 years old. Had to have my mom's permission to go in. And boy, um, that violence and that anger paid off. <laughs> I fit pretty well in there. I went through uh, all the combat training, advanced combat training. When I got out of the reserves, out of boot camp, out of the reserves, I, uh, I uh, met a guy by the name of Jack Allison. And he, he and I drove up to Livermore, California, a little town just outside of San Francisco. And uh, you guys, any of you remember the, the TV series called Route 66? Anybody remember that? Well, it was 1964. That was popular. And so Jack and I decided we're going to live that life. So his mom gave us his car. Now, if you remember, they went across country in a nice Corvette. Remember that? They meet nice people. We went across country in a four-door 1956 Dodge. <laughs> it wasn't quite the same. Well, as we we're driving across the country, we found ourselves uh, just outside of Oklahoma City, where the Sioux Indian uh, Reservation is at. And uh, there was a small general store on the reservation. There was a nice looking girl uh, who uh, whose dad owned the store. And uh, as we stopped there, he fell up with gas. She asked, would I like to come upstairs to her room and listen to some music, play some records? I said, sure. So I went up to the second floor uh, in the back of the general store and we're playing records. And I heard this commotion outside and I went to the door and looked down the stairs. And here is this Native American Sioux Indian just huge man and this was his girlfriend and he was drunk and as he came up the stairs toward me and I walked down by him he grabbed me by the front of the shirt threw me down the staircase toward a fireplace and as I landed there I came up off the floor with a piece of firewood and as he approached I hit him in the face with it Uh, when he went down on the ground I hit him eight or nine more times in the back of the head and the neck I tried to kill him I was arrested there and I was, because it was on an Indian reservation, it's a federal offense. Anything the Indians do at that time on the Indian reservation was a federal offense. So you got sent to federal penitentiaries. They gave me what they call a Youthful Offender Act. I was only 17, almost 18. And uh, the Youthful Offender Act is 60 days to six years. And they sent me out here to Quincy and Kipling. You know where that penitentiary is out there? Uh, I was there. Two years into this sentence, I realized I wasn't going to get out soon. (laughs) And uh, we used to gang up together. The whites and the Hispanics would partner up together to take on the Indians because the Indians, the Native American population was so huge. So we would gang up together and would fight them. And this one particular time we did and we 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 thought we had won. We had bragging rights for who was the toughest. Uh, They took us and put us in solitary confinement, stripped me naked. And I was in a five by nine cell. And in the middle of the night. Uh, three Indian guards came in and beat me senseless. They broke my nose and um, broke uh, one of my, fractured one of my ribs and kicked out one of my teeth. And, and um, I remember telling them before I was unconscious, I, I was going to do them in. I was in the infirmary for about 90 days. And when I got out, any of you lived here in the Denver area since 19, before 1965, anybody? 
Do you remember that big uh, storm that came in? The Platte River overflowed and the lights went out. I mean, it was a horrible, horrible storm. Remember that? That year, that winter, I was at that prison over there. Um, I got out of the infirmary. I'm in the TV room. And uh, the way they made you watch TV, uh, you had to wear white boxer shorts and a white T-shirt. Uh, you got your showers all done, and then you could watch a little bit of TV, but you were all dressed in white. And I'm sitting there with a knife that I had made. I worked in the shoe shop. And uh, in the shoe shop, I don't know if, in, if you guys know it, but in Brogan boots, there is a, there's a plate right here in the shoe that keeps the, the sole from curling up. That plate there is called a shank. That's where they get that word from. And I ground that shank down into a knife, and I always had that knife with me, and I had it under my leg sitting in the TV room with my little white underwear on, watching TV, and the power went out, 1965. One of those Indian guards was on duty at the time, and he was about six chairs, six rows of chairs in front of me, and I thought, here's my opportunity. So I took my knife, walked through six rows of chairs. It was dark, but I could see him. I grabbed him from behind, and I stabbed him seven or eight times in the throat and the chest and neck and in the face, tried to kill him. I threw him down and I quickly ran to my bunk and got in my bunk, pretending I was asleep. When the lights came back on, uh, the guards saw what had happened. They shot off tear gas. They got us all lined up against the wall. And here we all are, nice, neat, dressed in white, except for me. I'm covered with the officer's blood. They took me back to court and gave me an additional five-year sentence. And then they shipped me out from that federal reform school there at the time to a men's penitentiary in El Reno, Oklahoma. Um, this was for men who were there for bank robbery, uh, crimes uh, involved across uh, state lines. And the average age there was 45 or 50 years old. I was, I was almost 19. When I got there, they said, we can't put you in the main yard population. You won't last a month. Uh, within a month, uh, they'll make a girl out of you. You know, you'll be somebody's girlfriend. And I said, you yeah, know, I don't think so. You put me out in the main yard population, I'll take care of myself. And I was probably 130 pounds soaking wet um, and uh, looked like a choir boy. The social warden of care and treatment at that particular prison believed that sports rehabilitated people. They believed that, you know, just get some young men involved in sports and uh, that'll straighten them out. So he required everybody to be in some kind of sport. I chose softball. They made me wear those little khaki pants, you know, the short khaki pants and the little, what, what, the, what, what they call the wife beater t-shirts, you know, the <laughs> khaki t-shirt. And uh, I went up to the plate. It was my turn to, to go to bat. I had a number 36 bat in my hand. There was an African-American guy sitting there as the catcher, an inmate. And as I walked up, he whistled at me. And I thought, well, hmm, this guy is not too bright. You know, he's squatted down. I'm standing up. He's got a mitt. I got a bat. <laughs> this guy can't be too smart. I'm not going to do anything unless he advances, makes some advance toward me. So I stood there at the plate uh, waiting for something to happen. And when the pitch came across, when he threw the ball back to the pitcher, he reached up with his mitt and he touched me on the butt. I spun around and I hit that man right in the ear with that number 36 bat. I hit him eight or nine more times inside the head. Tried to do to him what I did to that Native American. Uh, they shot off the gas, they tackled me, took me back to court, gave me another five years for assaulting an inmate. 
I didn't have any more problems at that particular prison. Uh, see, in prison, uh, if you just fight, if you're willing to get in and fight, it's kind of social order. It's almost backwards. Uh, if, you've killed a, if you've killed a police officer, you have incredibly high status. If you're in there for child molestation, you're on the bottom of the social order. So it's, a, it's an odd uh, kind of system, but it's, it's brutal. But I had developed a, a pretty good reputation. I had developed a... Uh, um, people knew that I loved to fight, and so I got left alone. Uh, shortly after, I asked my, my parents moved out to California, and I put in for a transfer and asked if I could be transferred out to Lompoc. Lompoc's a federal penitentiary out on the West Coast. So they said yes. They transported me across country in an Oldsmobile station wagon in a jumpsuit, orange jumpsuit, chained at my feet, chained at my waist, and chained at my hands. And so you can imagine this kind of choir boy looking kid, uh, 18, 19 years old, being transported across these, these federal officers. They were embarrassed for me. So whenever we'd stop at a restaurant to eat or uh, to use the restroom, you know, I'd kind of shuffle in as best I could. And, and finally, uh, they couldn't take the embarrassment anymore. And they said, son, if, if we take these chains off of you, will you give us your word that you won't run? I said, sure. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> so they took the chains off and they were really nice officers. Um, when we got to Los Angeles, it was dark. And so they couldn't get me on to Lompoc that day. So we stayed at a federal halfway house. And they said, Paul, uh, you know, you kept your word. You didn't try to run. If you give us your word again that you won't run, we won't chain you to the bed. I said, I won't run. And so they didn't chain me to the bed. And I ran off that night. I didn't, uh, I didn't know how to drive a stick shift. I stole a car. I found a car out with some keys. And I stole it. And it was like an old Chevrolet. And it was one of those things that you change the gears on the column. And you had to put the clutch in, change the gear, and let the clutch out a little bit at a time. Or otherwise it would kind of jump on you and die. Well, I was doing that, jumping down the street. Police pulled me over and said, whose car is this? I said, uh, it's my brother's. What's his name? I made up a name. They looked through the glove compartment, finally, finally found the registration, saw it wasn't correct. I gave him a fake name. They took me and put me in the L.A. County Jail, which is just a huge, huge, I don't know if any of you, well, I won't ask, any of you have been to, <laughs> in the L.A. County Jail, so you know it's big. It's like 20,000 people in this, in this place. So I made up this name and uh, continued to answer to it, and I just went through the process, and they charged me with joyriding. And uh, they sentenced me to 60 days on a fire break, making fire breaks across the mountains in Glendale, California. So I'm up there doing my thing. And the next group of inmates that came up from the L.A. County, one of them said, hey, is there a Wiggs up here? And I said, I know a Wiggs. Why do you ask? They said, well, uh, he said, they know who you are and they're coming to get you tomorrow to take you on back to Lompoc. So I ran off that night. It's about 20 miles up in the mountains, and I, I made my way down to San Fernando Valley where my brother lived. And uh, I can still see the look on his face when I knocked on the door. And you know, I got this pair of blue dungarees on. To, even today, guys, when I wear a, a blue dungaree shirt, I feel like inmate. <laughs> just, you, know, you get to wearing those clothes long enough. And it had L.A. County Jail written on the, on the breast up here and L.A. County Jail written across the back. This was like 1967, and you remember the hippie movement and, and all the drug culture and the counterculture. And here I was in L.A. dressed like this, and I did not stand out at all. <laughs> just, I looked like everybody else out there. Showed up at my brother's, and he said, Paul, you can't stay here. It's only a matter of time before they find you, and they will. And uh, he put me on a bus to Phoenix, Arizona, and $50, and uh, my military issue, 45 I got to Phoenix. Uh, he said, look, here's what you do, Paul. Get yourself a room at the YMCA. 
Try to find a job. Do as good as you can for as long as you can. And when they find you, because they will, when they find you, maybe they'll be merciful if you've done pretty good for a period of time. So that was my game plan. Go there, get a job, fake name, try to, try to do right. Well, I was in the uh, uh, YMCA and I'd finally run out of money. And I was looking pretty shabby. And I'd applied for a job at a gas station. I didn't have a high school diploma. And uh, this gas attendant, it was at a Union 76 gas station at 16th Street in Camelback. And later on in my uh, life, as I moved up in the company at Arizona Public Service, I I used to go there and buy my gas. I felt like I owed them something, you know, having robbed them. So I (laughs) I could pay it back a little bit. And uh, he treated me pretty shabbily. So I thought, you know what? I think I'll just rob this place. So I robbed it. I think I got 32 bucks uh, out of the robbery. I took the station manager into the bathroom, you know, the kind of outdoor bathroom that you can use a key to go and use the bathroom. I locked him in there and said, if you come out of here, I swear I'll kill you. And the, do- the door was locked to me. Uh, you know, shows you how professional of a <laughs> criminal I am. Uh, after I left, he opened the door from the inside. I walked out. <laughs> he called the police. And as I'm walking down Camelback, a police car pulls up and says, a young man assumed a position up against the car. And I knew if I did that, you know, you go up and you spread eagle on the car, he would know that I had dealt with the police before. So I, I said, I'm sorry, beg your pardon. <laughs> and he said, get up against the car. And he put me up against the car, frisked me down. And he said, were you at a gas station back here, uh, you know, about 30 minutes ago? I said, no, not me. I, uh, I'm out looking for a job. He said, uh, where are you staying? I'm staying at the YMCA. Uh, I can't find a job. I'm, you know, I just got out of the Marine Corps. And this police officer said, you were in the Marines? I said, yeah. He said, me too. He said, well, you know how hard it is for us vets to get a job. And he said, did you see duty in Vietnam? I said, yeah. <laughs> where were you stationed? I didn't know a lot about Vietnam. I mean, having never been there, I, I knew about Hanoi and I knew about Saigon. And I, that's about all I knew. I said, well, I was stationed just outside Saigon. He said, me too. I said, <laughs> really? He said, what division of the Marines were you in? I said, I was in the 1st Marine Division. Me too. And I, I, I knew he was going to ask me a series of questions. And finally, he's going to say, yeah, who are you? So I said to him, when were you in Vietnam? He said, I was there in 66. I said, ah, see, I was there in 60. Five. And he said, well, listen, I'm sure it's not you. Why don't you hop in the car? We'll go back and then we'll give you a ride back down to the YMCA. I said, you know, I really appreciate that. Uh, any of you guys ever been in the backseat? Anybody in here ever been in the backseat of a squad car? Come on, some of you. Come on. <laughs> Thank you. And I, they don't have any door handles on those babies. <laughs> and I knew when I got in, there is no getting out. So this guy, uh, where's Dean at? Dean here? Not Dean. Uh, this this nice cop, he was really a nice guy. He opened the door and turned to me to face me. And when he did, I kicked him right in the crotch. Hit him right in the temple. And down he went. And I took off running. And I'm running as hard as I can. His partner had jumped out of the car and was in, in foot pursuit of me. And as he's chasing me through and in between the houses, I can hear him holler, stop or I'll shoot, stop or I'll shoot. And I said, he won't, he won't shoot. He, he just won't. And as I went up over a cyclone fence, I could see that he was gaining ground on me. I mean, I'm 19 years old, and i got tennis shoes on. This guy is like 40, and he's got leather sole shoes on, and he's gaining on me. You know. And uh, as I went over the fence, I looked back, and I could see him. As he was nearing the fence, he had his gun out, and he was hollering, halt, or I'll shoot. And he cleared the fence, and 
when he came down on the other side, he came down on one knee and he leveled the gun at me and I hear it. And I heard the round go right over my shoulder. And the lawn landscaping in Phoenix, they do what they call irrigation lawn. They just turn the water on and they fill the lawn up about that deep with uh, water. And, and uh, that's how they irrigate things. I saw this lawn just explode. Mud went everywhere. <laughs> I thought, this guy's trying to kill me. I tripped over the curb and into this lawn and this mud I went sliding. And I, I couldn't get to my feet. And he was gaining ground. And I could see he was going to tackle me. So I dropped back down on my knees. And over the top of me, he went into the mud with me. And he slid and the gun came out of his hand. And I thought for just a moment, get the gun, kill this guy so you can get away. Now, it wasn't anything personal. It was just I was trying to get away. Uh, but the gun had gone a little bit further than he was. And so instead, I jumped over the top of him. And as I passed by him, I kicked him as hard as I could right in the face. And out into the street, I ran. And this officer who I had kicked in the crotch earlier, he had recovered. He had brought the car and cut off my flight and brought it to a skidding halt. And he had the door open. He was down behind the door with his gun pointed at me. And he said, stop or I'll kill you. So I stopped in the middle of the street, out in the pavement. I had my hands up in the air, and the officer who I just kicked in the face tackles me. Down on the ground we go, and he begins to punch me out pretty good. He grabbed my left hand and pulled it up behind my back and cuffed me and pulled my right hand up and then took me to the squad car face down by my hands and threw me in the floorboard. They took me back, and they identified me at the gas station. And uh, as we're driving to the Maricopa County Jail in Phoenix, I heard one of them say, Oh, crap. I think we broke his arm. And I didn't feel anything. My adrenaline was pumping, and I'm thinking, how do I get out of this? So they stopped the car, squad car, got me out, took the handcuffs off, and my hand had swollen up over the cuff. And they began to tell me how bad they felt. And uh, they took me to Maricopa County Hospital instead and began to set my wrist. And as I'm sitting on the gurney all muddy, and I'm thinking, how do I get out of this? Uh, The officer says... Son, were you really in the Marine Corps? Yes. Were you really in Vietnam? Yeah. He said, Why, have you ever done anything like this before? I said, never have. You know, just, you know how hard it is to get a job. He said, uh, oh, this is, this is terrible. We'll see if we can help. So I went to the Maricopa County Jail, and these two officers would come by, and they would see me occasionally. And uh, I can tell you, I know, I know Dean will confirm this. Any of you, any police officers in here? Ooh, ooh. <laughs> In the case of the Fifth Amendments here, <laughs> um, police officers, if there's anything they don't like, is to be conned. Isn't that true? You, know, you get the sense that you're pretty savvy. You've seen some uh, fairly sophisticated lies, and you pride yourself on being able to see through a con job. Isn't that, isn't that true? Well, these two officers showed up my, my cell block, and they would drop by once every week or so, and they would say, I think I gave him the name Mike. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing much better, sir. And I'm really playing it up the best I can. And, son, we're going to get you out of this. This is your first time to be in any trouble. I, I figured, hey, it worked in L.A. Maybe it'll work here. These two officers showed up one day, and one of them was standing there like this. And you can see the, mu- you can see the muscles in his jaw just <laughs> rippling. And I thought, uh, thumbs up. <laughs> and he said, Wiggs, we've got you. Well, <clears throat> they gave me a went to court. Uh, for a simple robbery and assault on an officer, and they gave me 7 to 15 years in the state penitentiary in Florence, Arizona. I was a little over 20 years old. So I'm in this prison, and I kind of, as I'm working my way through, 
trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. I said, hmm, some people are doctors, some people are lawyers, some people are convicts. So that's what I'm going to be. I'm just going to be good at it. So I got on the boxing team and, and uh, in fact, almost became like a jock in prison. Learned how to play guitar there. And uh, we formed a group called Knowledge Seekers. And uh, the only thing they allowed to meet together, allowed the men to meet together in the prison, there was two things, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narconon, a drug addiction. If you had drug problems, you could join Narconon. They'd let you out of your dormitory or out of your cell block to attend those two meetings. So they said, any of you alcoholics? Yeah, that's me. I got an alcohol problem. <laughs> I didn't, but I said, sure. You got a narcotics problem? I got that too. You know, whatever it takes to get out of the cell block to you know, have some time with the other guy, sure. Well, we formed this group called Knowledge Seeker Society, and the purpose of it was to, quote, re- help rehabilitate ourselves. It was not. It was just a scam. I worked in the administration portion of the prison, and I stole the phone book. And in that phone book, I got a, over 100 corporate business names, and I wrote them all the same letter. The letter basically said, hey, there's a group of us inmates down here. Uh, we know someday we're going to be released from prison. We want to rehabilitate ourselves. Uh, we want to become better citizens. I mean, we don't even know how to tie a tie. We don't know how to balance a checkbook, which all that was true. But uh, the letter was saying, would you come down and help us out? Because someday we're going to be released. And it was a lie. It was just something to convince these guys to bring us in liquor or uh, adult magazines or whatever we could con out of these guys. That was the real purpose. About a month later, 10 companies, representatives from 10 companies showed up at the front door of the state prison. One of them was a guy by the name of Gary Taylor. He worked for Arizona Public Service Company. And uh, they kept coming back and they kept saying, no, you're not going to be allowed into this prison. No, no, week after week. And the businesses slowly stopped coming except for Gary Taylor. Gary, uh, he worked in the personnel department for Arizona Public Service. He's a Mormon. And uh, he was one of those kind of bleeding heart liberals that, that you hear about. He just wanted to help people. I didn't know the Lord. And when he came in, uh, something happened between me and Gary. Gary, I said, I know this man has done time somewhere. He talks like us. He walks like us. He's got the same humor as us. And he and I just hit it off great. Well, he began to ask us, hey, I'm going to help so-and-so get out of prison and get him a job. Is he conning me or is he a pretty good guy? So we became like a little mini parole board. We would tell him who the, who the good guys were, the ones he ought to take a risk on. And he began to get men jobs and get them out. And he became like folklore in the prison. Gary Taylor, what a guy. Personnel Department for Arizona Public Service. One day he came to me and said, Paul, let me see about getting you out of, out of prison. What do, you, what do you think? I said, well, if you do... Uh, the state of California is just going to get me. And then after that, the federal government will want me for the crimes that I've done there. There's no need to waste your time on me. He went back to Arizona Public Service, got a company lawyer, uh, wrote to Everell J. Younger, who was the prosecuting attorney of Los Angeles County at the time. Everell J. Younger. Uh, it's kind of ironic. He's the, great, he's the grandson of uh, Cole Younger, <laughs> the bank robber. So <laughs> here's this guy. He writes this letter and said, hey, come get this young man. Try him for escape. Run his time together. Everell J. Younger said, I'm dropping all the charges for escape from that county road gang. Uh, a guy by the name of Val Emery was my um, boss at, this, uh, at the state prison. He wrote the federal government and said, why don't you run the time together? Look, he's got a 15-year sentence. Uh, He's got 11 years that he owes the federal government. Why don't you run them together? Federal government wrote back, 
and dropped all the charges against me. The law at the time in Arizona said anybody convicted of a prior felony conviction had to do one half of their maximum sentence. My sentence was seven to 15 years, which meant I had to do seven and a half years. The Arizona legislature met and changed the criminal code that summer of 1970 and said anybody convicted of a, of a felony is eligible for parole after one third of their minimum sentence, which was seven years. That meant I was eligible immediately. I didn't expect to make parole, but I was eligible. My sister, who is a Catholic girl, my oldest sister, Anne, in 1970 accepted Christ as her Savior. That was when the charismatic movement kind of swept through the Catholic Church and uh, the Protestant churches. And and, uh, my sister became a born-again Christian, even though she was Catholic. She began to pray for me, and she had some other ladies that said, uh, Would you pray for my brother? He's in prison somewhere, and I don't know where he's at. That was in the summer of 1970. I went before the parole board, not expecting to make parole in November of 1970. And uh, when I got there, the parole board was made up of three individuals, all appointed by the governor of the state of Arizona. And the chairman was named William Riley. William Riley was president and CEO for Arizona Public Service Company. And Gary told me, Paul, when you go in there, look, they know you got this anger problem. So they may try to get you to make you mad. So don't bite. If they insult you, just take it. Don't say anything. Don't go crazy. And certainly don't assault anybody while you're there. So when the parole board, I was expecting, I was kind of braced for some kind of insults that they might hurl at me. And Bill Riley said, son, if we were to release you, do you have a place to stay? And before I could say no, Gary said, yes, he's going to stay with me and my wife and my two kids. Oh, said, do you have a job? And I said, no. Gary said, yes, he's going to go to work for our Arizona Public Service, our company, in the mailroom. He'll deliver company mail uh, to the different offices. And uh, he said, well, step outside, Paul. And he's just the most gracious man. Uh, and I'm so pleased I got to know Mr. Riley later on. I stepped outside, and a few minutes passed, and they handed me this note that came out. And the note said, release date, January the 4th. 1971. This is like two months away. Now, mind you, I am the same stinking sinner I've always been. Same problems. I've just gotten craftier, savvier. Uh, I've, I've just got better at what I do. And Gary came out and said, what did they say? I held a note up to the window so he could see it. And he, he read it and he said, uh, I didn't want you released on January 4th. I wanted you out December the 23rd. I want you out for Christmas. <laughs> See, Gary, doesn't matter. Christmas doesn't mean that much to me. And uh, he said, I'll go back in. I'll get this straightened out. I said, don't do that. <laughs> Leave them alone. They might change their mind. He came back and he had a new date. December the 23rd, 1970. Now, it was only a couple of weeks earlier. But it was, it was important, I guess, for the Lord. Uh, I said, it really, Christmas doesn't mean much. It's, it truly is an apple and a comb from the Salvation Army. That's all it is to me. On December the 23rd, he came down and he picked me up. But before he did, there was a little party. My friends had a little going away party. And I can still remember Joe Janovic, who had, had done 18 years on death row for murder. He finally got his uh, commuted to life. And he was there at the party. And he said, Paul, go out have a good time. Get drunk. Find a girl. Rob somebody and come on back. Because this is where you belong. This is where your friends are at. So I got out on that day and 
I won't ever forget it. December the 23rd, 1970, Gary said, we're going to my office. There's Christmas parties going on. I want you to meet some people at the company, people that have helped out. And I said, all right. So we walk into the into the building up a flight of stairs and we turn the corner and sitting at this desk is this most beautiful girl I'd ever seen. I said, wow, who's this? <laughs> he said, this is Marcella. And she helped to write a lot of the letters to get you out. And I said, wow. Um, it was like six months later we were married. We've been married 37 years now. What a, <laughs> what a stunning... I tell a fellows at the Band of Brothers, what for Marcella, I'd, I'd probably be sleeping under a bridge somewhere. And one of the guys said, mm, you wouldn't even have a bridge. <laughs> so into the office I went and I, I knew that somebody was going to say something like, hey, how's it going, convict? And I would just go off on them. I, I really was worried about that. And they took me into Gary's office and I sit down in there and Marcella came in and said, would you like some punch? And. She said, I'm I'm going home tomorrow. Had I been released later, I probably would have not met her. So she was really gracious, and and I didn't feel like I had to lie to her. She knew about me. She knew that I'd been in prison. She knew about the things in my life. So it was really nice being honest and open with someone for the first time. Shortly after that, Marcella came back, and uh, she came over to Gary's house. And uh, we talked, and she asked me out to lunch at the at the company. So I remember we were in this room. It was like 300. Can you imagine 300 people? Uh, a huge corporation. And uh, eating in prison is a serious, <laughs> serious thing, and you do it fast. So I had my tray, and I said, give me some of that and some of that. And we had a couple of girlfriends at Marcella from her department. We all sat down at the table together, and as soon as my butt hit the... Cheer, man! I was eating. I was going at it, mouth full of food. And I look up, and and they're looking at me like, wow! <laughs> they hadn't even put their napkins on their laps. <laughs> and the people in the cafeteria were all kind of, wow! Who's this guy? <laughs> and just a flush of embarrassment. I mean, I was mortified. And uh, I want to stand up and say, yeah, so what? <laughs> I, mean, I was just angry. So I just walked out. Marcella followed me, and she befriended me, and said, it's okay. I remember I was crossing the street, walking her back to her office, and there was a car coming in. She didn't see it, and I, I wanted to hold her by the elbow and say, watch out, you know, step out of the street. And I thought, no, <laughs> I grabbed this girl by the elbow. <laughs> They're going to have me back in prison. So, you know, I was just, I was so fearful of everything, so I just poked her on the arm. <laughs> I said, watch out, there's a car coming. And uh, she must have thought I was pretty strange. Well, we started having lunch off, off campus and alone and, and uh, talking. And she said, would you like to go to my church? I said, sure. You bet. I'll go wherever you go. <laughs> you want to go to church? I'll, I'll go to church. You know. And uh, we went to a little church up at uh, North Scottsdale. And uh, Dick Zollner is a pastor whom I, I'm so glad I got a little bit closer to him before he died. And to let him know just how influential he was in my life. He was a Texas man. And uh, when we got up there, he was talking about how God and Jesus had set the prisoner free. Uh, I'm right on the front row and I'm thinking, okay, she told him. You know, <laughs> and, she, <laughs> and she had, now I got this thing like, all right, he's preaching at me. And uh, she's told him I'm a convict and, you know, uh, so as I'm sitting there, he then told the story. And I want you to turn to it if you would now. 
In uh, the book of Luke, you know the story. It's a great story. In the book of Luke, uh, chapter 8, uh, verses 43 through 48. I won't read the whole thing. I'll tell you the story. Now, this Texas uh, pastor, and you know Southerners and Texans, they know how to tell good stories. He, he, was t- he told the story great. I'm sitting on the front row. And he began to tell the story about this woman who had bled for 12 years. She stank. She was dirty. Uh, and in the Jewish culture, she was dirty in more ways than just the blood. She was... Uh, the bed that she lived in was dirty. The things that she touched were dirty. She was ostracized from the community. Nobody wanted to be around her. Uh, she probably had to hide her face just to be close by. And here Jesus was. He'd just gotten off the boat. And he was pressed and pressed by people. Thousands of people around him. And she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made whole. If I can just touch his garment. And that's where her heart was at. And as Jesus was walking in, in the streets of this tiny town and people were pressed around him, this pastor said, Jesus turned left right in front of her and she knew she was going to miss him. So she dug her way through the crowd and at the last moment she leapt and when she fell to the ground, she caught the hem of his garment. And Jesus stopped and said, Who touched me? And his disciples said, Master... Everybody's touched you. Lots of people have touched you. He said, no. I felt the power come out of me. The scripture says, someone touched me differently. Now, I've learned since then. Jesus knew who touched him. He knew who it was. But he wanted her to say who it was. And this woman in fear, in fear of being ostracized, in fear of being condemned by fellow Uh, Members of her community in fear out of being shunned and pushed away. She said, it was me. I touched you. And he said, woman, your faith has made you whole. And then Dick Zoller said, do you feel like that woman? Do you feel dirty? Do you feel sinful? Do you feel unclean like her? My head was going (laughs) up and down. I'd forgotten all about prisoner and all that stuff. My head was going up and down. He said, would you like to be clean? Would you like to be whole? Would you like that sin taken out of your life? (laughs) All I could do was think, yes, I want that, Lord. I want to be like this woman. I don't want sin in my life anymore. I'm full of it. He said, let's close our eyes and bow our head. Pray this prayer with me. And guys, I don't know what happened. It was like a veil just dropped. And as I closed my eyes, something said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, you don't need this. This stuff is for old men. It's for women. It's for children. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. Suck it up. Quit all this foolishness. And I said, I I ain't getting up. I'm not raising my hand. I don't need this. This is not for men. And Dick's all in her, bless his heart. He just kept imploring. I just looked at the floor. I wasn't getting up. I certainly wasn't raising my hand, and I wasn't going forward. I just sit there. The service was over, and we left. We got outside, and, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm a born optimist. Look, when you're, when you're in a nine-by-five cell, butt naked, thinking tomorrow's going to be better, you're an optimist. <laughs> and, I, and I am. But on that day... I couldn't get out of the depression. 
My grandmother had taken me to this little Baptist church in Reno, Laura, Mississippi. Every time the doors were open for five years, I knew what sin was. I knew that I was going to hell. And here I had the opportunity and Christ was presented to me and I said no. I said, Lord, I have screwed up this life. It's only a matter of time before I go back to prison. Somebody's going to say something to me. I'm going to assault them. I'm going to steal something. I'm going to do something wrong. I'm going back to prison. I know it. And now I have ruined the next life. I'm going to hell. And I said, I'm going to go over to Marcella's and I'm going to talk to her. So I left Gary's house and I began to walk over. There was a few miles over to her house. And as I walked, I found myself praying. Uh, talking out loud, and I said, God, this feels like prayer. It's close as I've ever came to it since I was five. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to stop, and I'm going to pray. So I'm standing alone on 32nd Street, a major intersection there, alone, and I just stopped, and I began to talk to God, and something said, kneel down. So I stepped off the sidewalk onto a parking lot, And I can still see the oil and the concrete barrier there. And I knelt down on my knees. And I said, Lord, I have really messed up my life. And I have denied you. And I know I'm going to hell too. And I can't stay out here with these strange people. I'm going to hurt somebody. And I, I don't want to go back to prison either. Would you do something? Would you? Something says just confess. And I said, Lord, I'm going to confess all my sins, but I want you to bring forward everything I've ever done. I want to confess everything I've done to people, people I've hurt, parents that I've disappointed, families. And the Lord began to bring up, it was like puke, uh, all the sin that I had done. And I began to confess them one at a time. You ever cried that kind of cry where the snot's running out of your nose and you're just tears running down? It's almost uncontrollable. I was just in a heap. As I confess one sin after another. And then I realize, gee, I'm current. <laughs> My sin. This is good. I said, Lord, I can't think of anything else I've done. I was on my knees maybe 20 minutes. I, I stood up. I didn't hear any thunder. I didn't see any lightning. But boy, guys, I'm going to tell you, I had a peace that passed all understanding. And I knew I was different. Turn with me, if you would, to Second Corinthians this is, a, this is a great verse, and I know you all know it, but it has rich meaning for me in my life. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Got it? It says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, which I was, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. And uh, didn't talk about sin. It didn't talk about remorse. It didn't talk about all those things. It talked about, I'm a new creation. I felt new. I felt like there was a, a power that flowed into me. As I have uh, told you, I got up dinner, ran to the west of the way to Marcella's and told her about what had occurred. And I'd accepted Christ. It was February the 17th, 1971. I won't forget it. Marcella and I were married uh, May the 1st of that same year. <laughs> you know, her parents had to be happy about that. <laughs> I remember one year, a couple of years, uh, I, I knew I had to tell her dad, and we sat down on the stoop of his house, and I said, uh, 
Oops. I said, um, Mr. Burrell, I've got to tell you something. He said, uh, what, son? And he and I just hit it off great. He loved me like his own voice. I said, uh, I've had some problems with the police, with the law. He said, son, that's okay. Young men, it's not uncommon. A lot of young men have problems with the law occasionally. So don't worry about it. Not another word. I said, okay. <laughs> Several years later, we're going down to Jefferson Lake fishing. He was taking me trout fishing. I didn't know how to fish. And he was taking me down there. And as we're driving past Kipling and, and uh, Quincy here, as we pass by this federal penitentiary, he said, see that place there? I said, <clears throat> yeah. He said, there's some bad men in there. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, no, I, I was in there. <laughs> and he said, wow, you did have some problems. <laughs> Boy, my family um, that I've married into, they are such a joy. and a, They love me so deeply. Mom, Marcella's mom, she's 85. Uh, all of her family has come to know Christ as their Savior, and it's just a, a blessing to me. In... Uh, those of you that hear me sing, you know I don't sing too well. Uh, I do love to sing, though. It's a joy to my heart. Turn with me, you would. Uh, uh, Psalms 40. You've seen this before, too. And when I read this, I, it's, it's almost like it's my verse. It was The Lord wrote it just for me. Psalm 40, uh, verses 1 um, through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry he brought me up out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry clay he set my feet upon a rock making my footsteps firm and he put a new song in my mouth and a song of praise to our God many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord isn't that great isn't that great this woman who I never knew the story of a pastor who told me about this woman who was dirty and stinky and filthy. I identified with her. This woman had a real impact upon my life. I praise God that he gave Luke this story to include in our Bible. Because I know it's for many of us, but I feel like it's just for me. Do you feel that way, guys? Ladies, you feel dirty at times? You feel unclean? I know I have. And it's the blood of Christ that can cleanse us from that and make us a new creation. Any of you ashamed of the gospel? Any of you ashamed of being Christians? I know there's some of you that are. A little bit embarrassed by being a Christian. We shouldn't be. There should be passion in our lives and love for God for what he's done for us. He's taken every one of us out of some pit, out of some slime, out of some place placed our feet on a solid rock of his love, he will never abandon us. He'll never leave us. We can have great confidence in that. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Craig and Susanna if they'll come up and uh, play a song for us. This song was real popular when I came to know Christ as my Savior. And uh, a number of artists have done it. It's He Touched Me. And it's so special. It was, it's for this lady. It's for me and it's for you. And uh, while they begin to play a little bit of the instruments and sing, I want to close this in a word of prayer and an opportunity for you to acknowledge your God who picked you up out of the miry clay, set your feet on a solid rock, 
and give you a chance to acknowledge him and say, thank you, Lord. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that Pastor Todd gave us to have passion in our lives, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to, to know the power in our lives, how it transforms us. Lord, we acknowledge there's sin in our lives. We acknowledge, Lord, that there is dirt. Lord, we want to be clean and right and whole, just like that lady in, that Luke writes about. Lord, we ask that you cleanse us. We ask, Lord, that you remove all the sin from our lives. Give us sanctified lives, Lord, that we might live lives worthy of our calling. Lord, that we might live lives worthy of you and the sacrifice that you could done. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us of our sins. Touch us, Lord. Let us not be like all those thousands that touched the Lord and nothing happened. And this one lady touched him and power went into her life. Lord, let that be for us. With heads bowed and eyes closed, any of you in here have that prayer? Raise your hand if you have. Go ahead, it's okay. Raise your hand. You've acknowledged that Christ has done something in your life, that he touched you. Raise your hand. It's okay. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, at this time, I'm going to ask that these people who have acknowledged Christ has touched their lives to not be like the others that wouldn't acknowledge it. I want you to all stand up. And Those of you that raised your hand, come on down here. There's men that have come down here that want to pray with you. Band of brothers, come on down. Those of you who raised your hand, feel comfortable. It's okay. Your family will wait for you. Come on forward. We'll have some elders that will join us. Now with the rest of you to stand up, pray for these men and women. I want you to sing this song with a new song in your heart about how he touched us. Pray for these brothers. Others, come on down. It's okay. Your family will wait for you. If there's others, here's a chance now to acknowledge Christ in your life, thanking him for dying on the cross for you because he loves you that much. Come on down. And we'll have some elders pray here. Other elders that are here, would you mind come down and pray with these brothers and sisters? Thank you. You can sing the song while we pray, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters. We acknowledge that you love them. Lord, give them confidence. Bless them. Let your Holy Spirit give them power. Lord, I pray that you would lift them up. Lord, let them grow in stature and grace with you. Lord, let them know how deeply you love them. in their life, Lord. We are new creatures in you, Lord. You've made us new. 
Father, let them know that with their hearts. Give them confidence and put a new song in their mouths. Praise God for you. Oh, praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, You're dismissed. Something happened And now I know He touched me And made me whole He touched me Oh, He touched me Oh, the joy that floods my soul Something happened